Harper with Jennifer Stone. Stay with us. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up. In darkness From the ones Who Walk in light Light them up Boys There's your picture Drop the shadows Out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is a Tuesday, October 20th, 2009. Oh, my God. It's time for the holidays. I see Halloween looming over me. Yes, Halloween and Thanksgiving. This is the time of year when I begin to check out the children. The children are watching us, folks. All over the world, children are watching the grown-ups. Interesting thought. <laughs> I watched Slumdog Millionaire again last night. Scared me to death. Just about frightened me off the planet when I think what all these young, young minds and hearts are making of what we do. I think about it more and more and more and more and more. Remember interviewing a young Afghan poet. He told me that his mom told him to be good to the women here. He gave me an ethnic necklace, I remember. Uh, obviously, his mom knew something about parenting. I'm not sure. I think <laughs> I think we're, we're overdoing it. I mean, I think, what is it, this business of trophy children. Uh, I'll get into that some other day. It's too depressing. Uh... What I thought I'd talk about today is something pleasant, like this wonderful new movie, Where the Wild Things Are. It's from a book by Maurice Sendak, published, I think, in 1963, uh, when my children were, yes, babies. My kids were born in 1960 and 62, and Where the Wild Things Are was what you call that cutting edge. Uh, everyone said, well, some people said, oh gosh, it's all about monsters and it will frighten the children. Some people have said that about the movie. They uh, said that to Maurice Sendak, the author of the original story. And he said, well, let them go to hell. Which, of course, is where the wild things are. They're in this... Uh, this wild place, you remember little Max, he says to them, let the wild rumpus begin. Uh, I remember, it took, me, it took me a little while, a few days, I guess, to get it, to get the book. Uh, I, I understood finally, you see, it's about this little boy who uh, has had a rough time. He's had a bad day and he's gone to bed without his supper or his mama put him to bed without his supper and so he takes a fantasy flight. Um, someone told me that yes, the one thing they didn't like about the movie was that 
uh, Max runs out of the house instead of, uh, what is that, uh, having his fantasy take him out of his bedroom. Yes, in the book, the walls of the bedroom turn into the sea. In the movie, he just runs outdoors. Uh, I don't know. You can argue about the little things. Uh, what I liked, of course, is that uh, they've made this thing come alive. Now, the problem is just that the uh, uh, the movie is a feature film. And the book is good for about 15 minutes, the little story of Max. So what they had to do was fill out uh, the story of the monsters and give them characterizations and, uh, uh, <laughs> yes, show us how awful the adult world really is. Yes, the world that Max is trying to get away from, the neurotic world of adults and crazy people. According to David Denby in The New Yorker, the wild things have mysterious relationships. Yes, they have friendships, love affairs, that kind of thing. Let me read you a paragraph of this. It's David Denby's current cinema in New Yorker, October 19. The article is titled, Naughty Boys. Aha, the opening sequences of Where the Wild Things Are are sensationally good. Movies made by Spike Jones, J-O-N-Z-E. It's a live-action feature based on Maurice Sendak's children's classic. Max is played by a little boy called Max Records, believe it or not, R-E-C-O-R-D-S, Records. Goodness sakes. That's his name, honest to gosh. They say that, yes, it took them. They searched over five continents to find this little nine-year-old. Uh, and uh, is it awesome actor. Star is born. Okay, Max is an angry nine-year-old boy. His teenage sister has abandoned him for her friends. His divorced mother... Uh, is noodling on the couch with her boyfriend. Um, now, of course, <laughs> it's confusing people. The um, the monsters are played by uh, well, they're they're um, they're in puppet costumes. It looks very retro, very old fashioned. Uh, but the voices are by these great actors we know. The divorced mothers played by Catherine Keener, K E E N E R. And she's too busy with her boyfriend to play, pay any attention to her little boy. Uh, Max Records plays Max, the lead, with darting eyes, lips pressed together in rage. This boy has no idea that anyone's feelings but his own could be real. That's right, I remember, nine years old. He builds forts in his bedroom. Builds an igloo in the front yard. He wants to be enclosed in his own imaginative space. But he also needs to burst out and tear around. Yes, <laughs> tear around. Oh, we used to have such fun doing that. Uh, uh, as Max crashes through the house, the camera bounding up and down stairs stays with him and brings us as close to a boy's impetuousness and egotism as we're likely to get in movies. The sequence has non-stop momentum, juggernaut impact. Max's mother tries to calm him down, 
but he bites her on the arm and runs out of the house wearing a wolf suit. Oh, I remember those wolf suits. We used those for Halloween, remember? Yes. Anyway, uh, the wolf suit has pointed ears sticking up like two little knives. As he gets into a boat and heads for the open sea, the movie slows down and offers a different kind of wonderment. The dark skies and foamy white waves of a perilous journey. Footnote here. For those of you who have HBO cable television at home, there's a 13-minute trailer you can check out. Uh, just, you know, punch up on demand where it says um, uh, where the wild things are. You know, 13-minute sneak trailer there, and you can get the picture. Uh gives you a pretty good idea of whether or not you want to see this movie. I would go out and find children if you don't have any. It's a movie to have grandchildren for. Anyway, Max arrives at a mysterious island. The filmmaker recreates the monsters living there. It stays, yes, he's very close to Sendak's ineffably goofy style. I was stunned. They, they, they really, you know, I, I expected it to fall flat somehow, but they really do come alive. Those are the characters from the book. The creatures are eight or even nine feet tall. They have snouts. They're horned, clawed, and furry with huge heads and snaggled teeth. They're as pointed as Max's wolf ears. One is lionish, another goatish. Each suggests a different animal, yet stays within a child's fantasy of that animal. An eccentric menagerie, yes, they are physically a little manic, but they're also almost tragic in their uncertainty and their melancholy. That's what it is. That's what's different. These are melancholy, yes, sad giants. They briefly think of eating Max, but claiming magic powers, he shouts, Be still! They crown him king instead. <laughs> he cries, Let the wild rumpus start! I remember we used to, we used to say that when the party began, you know, or when we were going to have a, a special, a funky wild party. Let the wild rumpus start, and they all run and jump and bash one another and gouge holes in trees and fall down in a heap, with Max happily nestled among them. The director, the <clears throat> filmmaker of uh, the witty experimental features being John Malkovich, an adaptation was right to use actors in elaborate suits. Oh, his two earlier movies, right. Being John Malkovich, well, okay. Adaptation, yeah, I think so. I, I like those, okay. Um, he uses actors in these elaborate suits. They're designed by Jim Henson's. You remember Jim, Jim Henson of the Muppets. Uh, instead of animated figures, yes, they play the monsters. The creatures sail through the air now and then. But most of the time, their movements are weighted rather than slickly virtuosic or glib. Uh, these are not athletes, right? <laughs> Only their faces, which have human-seeming eyes and mouths, 
were digitally enhanced. Though Jones, the filmmaker, stays faithful to these creatures, he discards Maurice Sendak's somber green and brown backgrounds. Movie was shot in Australia. The landscapes are fresh and bright and blossoms fall like a benediction through the trees. A big hairy dog rambles on a ridge above a blank yellow sand desert. The best scenes are peerless in their creative freedom and warmth. Yeah, this is an instant classic, folks. When Max sits atop the head of the monster's nominal leader, Carol, is played by James Gandolfini. You know James Gandolfini. <laughs> he played Tony Soprano for all those seasons on television. And once the actor said that maybe the Sopranos was a little too violent. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Uh, anyway, uh, he's taken some roles that are a little bit more mellow than Tony Soprano. But uh, he plays Carol, the leader of the monsters on the island uh, Max holds on to his the beast's horns and uh, he's told that the kingdom belongs to him it's an ecstatic image of childhood aggression fulfilled yes <laughs> as we used to say we're the boss of it we're the boss of it uh, Max has lost his old family, but gained a new one, and it pays him unlimited attention. Okay, David Denby, Denby in The New Yorker goes on to suggest that the movie runs into trouble after the uh, opening sequences. Uh, he writes, Sendak's book was created for young children. The text is all of 338 words long. Some of the drawn pages are rhapsodically wordless. But this movie <coughs> has been designed for older children and for adults. And these creatures, voiced by strong actors like Gandolfini, Forrest Whitaker, Lauren Ambrose, Chris Cooper, Paul Dano, and Catherine O'Hara never stop talking. Footnote here. Uh, Lauren Ambrose, uh, she even looks like, her face looks like one of the monsters. Lauren Ambrose is this brilliant young actress. She played the uh, youngest daughter in Six Feet Under. For six seasons, six years, she played Claire in Six Feet Under. The girl with the red hair, you probably at least caught one episode of that. And I recently noticed she was on Broadway with Jeffrey Rush and Susan Sarandon in a play. Uh, the three of them did this classic play. I think she's decided to go the high road and um, be a very serious actress. Uh, Chris Cooper, we all know. Uh, anyway, these are grown-up actors, grown-up um, folks that we have to take seriously. Uh, now, Jones, the filmmaker, and Dave Eggers collaborated on a screenplay here. And uh, there's more to this than Maurice Sendak's book. 
they turn out a script that, well, they turn out a bunch of uh, monsters who are discontented and quarrelsome. They have mysterious relations with one another, the love affairs, friendships, and deep-seated grievances. Okay. <laughs> Got some modern angst here. They throw jealous fits, walk off in a huff. And we don't know always where the hurt feelings are coming from. Well, that sounds like reality to me. I don't know. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be contradicting David Denby. But uh, I don't always agree with him. He's a wonderful film reviewer, though. Anyway, he goes on to say that in the movie, the bickering peters out and then starts up again. And after a while, the creatures all sound like peevish adults elbowing one another out of the way <laughs> at the smoked fish counter at Zabar's. No one gets enough love or respect. In the book, the creatures are projections of Max's imagination. But these beasts, that is, the beasts in the movie in this new script, are all too real. And appearances to the contrary, they aren't wild things. Oops. Looks like this is a reality sandwich. <laughs> They're becalmed. Even defeated. They build a twiggy fort that looks like a giant bird's nest. And then they don't use it much. After their initial burst of energy, they fall into a funk. And the movie seems to be less about liberation than about futility. One of the things they ask Max when he becomes king is, Will you... Keep out all the sadness. The answer, it turns out, <laughs> is no. Oh, gosh, it's a movie for grown-ups. Well, well. Anyway, Jones and Eggers have spoken of their desire to keep the film close to a child's needs. But have they done that? Kids like danger followed by a release from danger and a return to safety. Yet the only danger posed by these creatures is that they will turn Max into someone as messed up as they are. The filmmakers may have wanted to link Max's anger to the creature's wounds, but the connection is fuzzy. Max isn't the one who hurt them. I have a vision of eight-year-olds leaving the movie in bewilderment. Why are the creatures so unhappy? That question doesn't return a child to safety or anywhere else. Of one thing, I am sure. Most children will be relieved when Max gets away from this anxious crew. That's the end of what David Denby has to say about... Uh, where the wild things are. Sad, sad, sad. I'm afraid, um, well, maybe David Denby isn't a mom. We all know that. While it is very confusing and bewildering, most children do, uh, what is that? Pay the price or 
take it in the neck. Uh, the behavior of the elders, their parents, and all the people they run into, uh, uh, it does spill over into the children's lives. Sad, sad, sad. There it is, there it is. Anyway, check it out if you want to look at that review. It's in the current cinema. It's called Naughty Boys, Where the Wild Things Are by David Denby. In the New Yorker, October 19th, 2009. And now, yes, <laughs> I think, I think, yes, um, I think uh, of the children. I was watching the uh, president's daughters uh, on C-SPAN doing a dance and thinking that, uh, what is it, they're in the third grade and the sixth grade now. And there was a... Uh, uh, one of those shows, you know, in performance at the White House was about uh, Latin music. And uh, the girls were trying out the drums. And I thought, well, they're not very wild. They're pretty much ladylike little girls. They weren't having a wild time at all. Uh, actually, the older girl, Malia, was playing the drums. Um, she was invited to try them out. Uh, they were out on the White House lawn. Uh, I'm just guessing that their mother and their grandmother, Mrs. Robinson, uh, are very careful about their, I guess we'll call it their manners, our princesses. Um, I'm sure that these girls, uh, Malia and Sasha, have a heightened awareness of the role their parents play in the world today. It's only been half a year uh, and, of course, they're still very, very young. Uh, there they were on their own front porch talking to all those superstars, uh, Tito Fuentes and Los Lobos and Mark Anthony and um, Jimmy Smith and all those fabulous people. Uh, <laughs> the MC made some jokes with the president there about not being invited inside. He says, it's nice of you to have us over, yes, even if it's out here in the yard in tent. The, the view, the picture was uh, awesome. The camera work was beautiful. The White House glowed. It was just beautiful nighttime. And the music was so good that it was almost a wild time. I kept thinking, yes, let the wild rumpus start. It didn't. There was no eruption of funk. They were all extremely dignified. Uh, there was the uh, new Supreme Court Justice. There she was. Um, and they treated her like a queen. And the <laughs> president danced uh, just for a few moments. He danced. And then Michelle and Barack danced with their own children. It was very nice. Uh, I kept thinking, I kept thinking that by the time uh, Barack leaves the White House in, what is that, three years or um, seven, what will it be? Yes, uh, those girls will be grown up. And they probably, yes, they will, <laughs> won't know about wild things anymore. They'll be grown ups. They'll be great ladies um, anyway anyway I was looking last night in my children's children's uh, movie book to see 
I forget sometimes what I think about the movies because I uh, don't very often go with children. I think we should all take a child when we go to see these uh, these pictures. I I I used to worry about what the mothers would think, but now I just sneak off with any of my young friends and <laughs> yes. Here's a piece I wrote years ago. It's called Happiness is a Warm Alien. It's all about childhood being the kingdom where nobody dies, you know. This was all about the, uh, oh, the masterpiece E.T., of course. I found this, let's see, this is a book that was published in 1988, and it's written by moi. I found a copy of it in the used bookstore. I've been waiting for years to find one of my books in a used bookstore. Let's see. It's for $5, and then they marked it down to 2 How embarrassing. Mm-hmm. 1988. It's called Mind Over Media. <laughs> Essays on film and television by Jennifer Stone. Anyway, I started out this section with uh, Peter Pan. Because I always think of that as the quintessential children's story or picture. Of course, it's very adult-oriented. It's true. Uh, you know, anyway, I talk about childhood being the kingdom where nobody dies. You know, children can just clap their hands and Tinkerbell's light goes on again. There's no death. <laughs> you remember Tinkerbell? She was a bit of a bitch. Adults appreciated her. When I was a child, that went right by me. I was pretty naive. Uh, then came uh, L.F. Baum's Good Witch. You remember the Good Witch Glenda of Oz? She tells Dorothy to click her heels together and the magic slippers will fly her home to Auntie M in Kansas. Always happy ending for the children. Always a safe return to the bosom of the family. <laughs> Not exactly your everyday tornado victim. Tell it to the kids who went through Katrina. Anyway, Steven Spielberg's E.T. the Extraterrestrial was cut from the same cloth as these earlier pictures. E.T. is a futuristic fairy. He's as old as the first child. I say he because his empathetic earth friend Elliot insists that E.T.'s a boy. You know how that is. Always the fantasy figures have to be projections of the child himself or herself. Anyway, whatever E.T. is, he's adorable. He's in the Hollywood tradition of the lost kid, the waif, the hopeless, homeless orphan. Yes, orphans. American movies are full of orphans. Spielberg says that he copied the eyes for the alien E.T., copied them from Carl Sandburg and Ernest Hemingway, one each. <laughs> yes, American audiences love orphans. It's not just the lost child in everyone or the remembrance of innocence. It's that we are an immigrant nation. We have lost our past. All of us are uprooted and longing for home. Of course, we haven't got one. Uh, remember, even Citizen Kane was about a child orphaned by circumstance. Uh, E.T. longs for a home phone. 
I was watching a group of kids on the bus the other day, and they all had these little cell phones. And I thought, my kids never wanted to talk to me when they were little. What are all these kids calling home for? Calling home on their cell phone. <laughs> so anyway, think of Dorothy's despair trying to get home to Kansas. Uh, think of Wendy. Remember Wendy in Never Never Land? E.T. had more motivation <laughs> because, you know, Earth was killing him. It was making him sick. The Earth is no escapist fairyland. Uh, I remember the uh, frightful opening scenes in E.T., the extraterrestrial. His visiting spaceship is frightened away. And he's welcomed by a police posse. Uh, certainly not as much fun as uh, a bunch of munchkins or lost boys. Uh, anyway... One of these days, when I have time, I'll read you all my stuff on children's classic movies. I think I might try to do that in time for Christmas. That's what we need to do. We need to go to Fairyland again, just in time for the holidays. Buy children's books before they're all gone. I don't think they're going to last much longer. They're all on film now. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air. Thursday morning at 8.20. Until then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Boys, there's your picture. Drop the shadow. You're listening to KPFA in Berkeley or KF, um, KPFB in Berkeley. The time is almost.